Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Boy, if you're here for the first time, we appreciate you stepping out. I know sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. If you're joining us online, we're grateful about that too. So when our kids were growing up, they were involved in Taekwondo. Taught them a lot of good things. But one of the things they taught them is what to do when you face opposition. When somebody comes for you, what do you do? Well, today we're going to talk about what God has for us, what God wants for us. And there'll be people that will be in opposition to what God wants to do in and through your life. How do we handle that opposition? That's what we're going to think about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to 2 Samuel 15 and 16. We're going to go all the way through 15 and halfway through 16, wrestling with this question, how should we deal with opposition? Now let me be clear, so I just kind of define this. You know, I'm not talking about opposition. I want to get my kids select team in this tournament, or I want to get a lakeside on Memorial Day, and I get opposition there. No, no, I'm talking about opposition to the work God wants to do in and through you. Get us up to speed. We have been in the books of First and Second Samuel a while. Israel's transitions from a loose federation of states to a theocracy. They think they need a king for security. God says that's a bad idea, but they keep pushing. And God says, so you can know it's ultimately me that you need. I'm going to give you your king. The first one fails. His name is Saul. God raises up a second one. His name is David, the guy who dropped Goliath with the stone, that guy. Long series, takes a while, but David ends up being king. And Israel begins to flourish under his rule. Begins to expand the border, the security of the nation. But in that, David makes a mistake. He had been told, or it had been written before Israel entered the promised land, Deuteronomy 17, 17, the king should not multiply wives. And David just ignored that. He kept taking a wife here, a wife there, a couple here. And it's kind of like, dude, you're living in disobedience. And finally it caught up with him. Saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. He thought, I want her. Well, she's married. It doesn't matter. She turned out pregnant in order to cover his tracks um, when he called her husband Uriah back and he wouldn't sleep with his wife because he was too honorable because his soldiers were out there. He had him murdered. And he thought he pulled it off. But the, Nathan, the prophet Nathan was sent by God and said, you know what? He sinned. David said, you're right, I did. Nathan said, you know, God's not done with you. You're forgiven. You'll continue as king. Your legacy your eternal legacy through Jesus will continue, but you will face the consequences of your decisions. The first one is, that child you conceive, that child will die. Second one is, um, the sword will not depart from your family, and we're living in that right now. David lost moral credibility. And so he had multiple wives, multiple kids, and um, a half-brother rapes a half-sister. David does nothing because he's lost the moral credibility to, to stand. So, Another brother takes things into his own hand, and he murders that brother. That brother's name is Absalom. He murders Amnon, who raped his sister. Absalom flees. David is devastated because he wants to be with his child. Joab, the commander of the army, works it so Absalom can come back to Israel, but David won't see him. Absalom sets Joab's field on fire to get people's attention, and, and so they meet. And so that's where we stand. Absalom is an undisciplined child. He has done what he wanted, when he wanted, and David lacked the moral credibility to discipline him, and now that's going to come home. So here we go, verse 15, chapter 1. It says, now it came about after this that Absalom provided him for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. The, the terrain didn't make a chariot necessary. In fact, it was an encumbrance, and the, the 50 runners are just going to slow the chariot down. So what's the deal? Why the chariot and 50 runners? He wants to look good. He wants to look important. Now, we wouldn't fall into that, would we? Outward appearance, we wear this, we drive this, we say this, we live here. Well, that's what uh, Absalom's doing. 
He's got something in mind. We find out more starting in verse 2. Uh, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, 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 from what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who, was had, who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. Absalom said, I'm willing to fill a vacuum here. The king ain't showing up, and boy, howdy, if I could be, I, I, I'd bring justice about. Uh, and when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Where's David? Where's David? Well, if you've watched the news any time for the last 20, 30 years, when a public figure is embarrassed because of behavior, be a politician, be an athlete, be a singer, be a, they retreat from the public eye. Because they don't want to ask, answer questions, what about, what about, what about? And I think David has retreated. David has retreated. And so Absalom is there to fill a void. So here's what happens in verse 7. It says, now it came about at the end of 40 years. Older manuscripts would say four, probably a scribal error. That Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Then the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, now you wouldn't want to deny somebody the right to worship and to pay a vow, would you? But Absalom's lying. That's not his purpose, to go worship. But you know what? When you haven't been disciplined, and you're the center of your world, you can lie. Because you're all there is. And if I have to, well, I mean, maybe it's not lying. Maybe I'm stretching the truth to get what I want. Okay. David is reaping the consequence of not disciplining this child. And Absalom thinks he's the center of the world. And if he has to lie to get what he wants, so be it. So what is it that Absalom wants? Verse 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. He didn't go to worship. He came to throw a coup. And interesting, Hebron was David's power base. He's going right down there, and he's raised up a bunch of people to say, Absalom is king. At this point, there's no turning back. Either Absalom has to die or David has to die. Two people are claiming the throne. That's insurrection. That's sedition. Verse 11, Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, 
who were invited and went innocently. They they were being played. They did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. How did we get here? How did we get here? David knew the word of God. Don't multiply wise, but he just, you know, he's the king, and you can take that, and you, you, and you, and you feel good, and you, you just add to that thing. We have control over our choices, but we don't have control of the consequences of our choices. And David has lost all moral credibility. And when Absalom fled after murdering his brother, said David's heart went out to Absalom. He longed for this son. You know what? This son's pulling a coup. This son is a spoiled brat. He's taken what he wants. I want to be king. I think I can do it better. That's how we got here. People setting aside the word of God. So, the result for David, starting in verse 13. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. David understands this is his life that's in jeopardy. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Now the king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. I'll be looking back at the city of David, wondering if he'd ever be back. And all the servants passed on beside him, all the Cherolites, the Pelites, and the Gittites, 600 men who came with him from Gath, passed on before the king. So David's being run out by his son. He's got opposition. That God has said, you will be my king, and you will have an eternal reign through Jesus. So over the next few verses, we're going to see David interact with five people, and we're going to get an insight into the nature, the character, and see how David responds. Let's start in verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you as a, are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You only came yesterday. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go back where I go, where I will return and take back your brother? Mercy and truth be with you. David said, look, man, you just come. And, and this, I don't know where the summer's ending. Why don't you go back? Get some, you're looking for stability. It ain't in me. Why don't you go? Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king and said, as long as the Lord lives and as Lord, my Lord the king lives, surely whatever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore, David said to Ittai, go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and with all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the book of Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Ittai said, no, I'm not going, man. David engendered great loyalty among his men. See a flawed guy, flawed character? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that. That's been on display. But his men loved him. And with a choice of comfort or staying with you, Ittai says, I'm going with you. 
That's the first interaction. Second interaction is with a couple of priests, starting in verse 24. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to you. So they want to take the ark out because that's representative of the, the presence of God. If you remember back in 1 Samuel early, Israel thought if we take the ark into battle, we can win. And it didn't work out. The Philistines took the ark. David's not having any of this. He's saying, look, the ark of the covenant is representative of the presence of God. The city of Jerusalem is God's city. Take the ark back. If God wants to deliver me, he will. But if he doesn't, I'm not, I'm not going to try and manipulate him. This is a complete submission to the will of God. Whatever you have, God, I'm good. And if, if I don't come back in, okay. I die out there because Absalom gets me, okay. But that doesn't mean David's passive. Look what he says, verse 27. The king said also to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I'm going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. David's setting up a spy network. You're not passive, submitted to the will of God. But hey, you guys go back in the city and you pump me with information. This is where I'm going to be waiting. You get me that kind of information. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. What? To be spies. David's fully submitted to God, but he's all setting up a spy network. He's going to counter this opposition. We take a break from David's interactions to get just a little piece of information. Verses 30 and 31. Now David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept. You bet he did because it's a city of David. Wondering if he'll ever come back. Wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Ahithophel had been his counselor. David understood this guy's wise. And his counsel to Absalom will sink me. So Lord, would you thwart that counsel? So he's trusting God, but he's not passive. Third interaction. Verse 32, it happened as David was coming to the summit where God worshipped, and behold, Hushai, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. Then David said, hey, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in the past, so I will now be your servant, then you, Hushai, can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. David's setting up a double agent. Remember he prayed? God thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Now, Hushai, you demand, you're going back in, and I want you to go specifically to counter whatever Ahithophel says. David is far from passive in this. Verse 35, are not Zadok and Abiathar? That's, remember, that's a spy network that he set up. The priests with you there? So it shall be, whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. And behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimez, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. 
So I'm going to get a guy in Absalom's house. You're going to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. And every piece of information, you're going to give it to the priests. They're going to give it to their sons. And they're going to get it to me. How's David responding? Submission to the will of God. But not passive. He's making plans to counter opposition. See, we started asking this question, how should we deal with opposition? Here we go. We should use a combination of devout acceptance of God's will and wise actions to counter opposition. It's a combination. Acceptance. Devout acceptance of God's will. God, your will be done. But that's not a ticket to passivity and wise actions to counter opposition. David's doing both. We go on. David's fourth interaction. Now, when verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mithibacheth, met with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, and 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, what, what, what do you have? Why do you have these? Ziva said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. He's, he's resourcing David's army. The king said, and, and where's your master's son? And Ziva said to the king, behold, he's staying in Jerusalem. For he said today, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself, let my, me find favor in your sight. Oh, my Lord, the king. If you were with us a few weeks ago, Bill Kohler talked about Mephibosheth. He was a son of Jonathan, and David had promised not to harm Jonathan's descendants. He was crippled in the feet, and David showed him grace. Well, Ziba is saying Mephibosheth has turned, and he's staying with Absalom. He's staying in the city. And we're going to find out Ziba's an opportunist and is lying. <laughs> but for now, David says, "What's Mephibosheth is now yours. Uh, he'll come back and revisit that. Fourth interaction. Fifth one, starting in verse 5, When King David came to Baruam, behold, there came out there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. Then Shimei said when he cursed, Get out! Get out! You men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. Then the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the reign into his hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you've taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. You are getting what you deserve. You're reaping what you sowed, David. You rightfully or wrongfully took Saul's place. And so Abishai is one of the leaders of the army. He's Joab's brother. He's got an idea how to deal with this in verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zerah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut his head off. I'll, I'll shut this guy up. I'll just cut his head off. Uh, David's not having it. Verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruah? I, I'm, I'm not brutal like that. If he curses and if the Lord has told him to curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? You know, David said, I don't know. Maybe God put him up this. I'm going to wait on God. Then David said to Abishai and to all the servants, behold, my son who came out for me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along 
hillside parallel with them. As he went, he cursed and cast stones, and he threw dust. The king and all his people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, David made some decisions, didn't he? David was faithful in a lot of areas, but he just kept adding wives. Kept adding wives, no consequence, and boom. Tried to cover his sin, and now he's got a mess. The son he longs for has rebelled against him and is now an opponent of what God wants to do in and through David. David's family is a mess because he has lost moral credibility. You know who else is a mess? The nation of Israel is a mess. So we need to choose our leaders real, real carefully. The character of a leader matters. Whether you're talking about a nation, you're talking about a business, you're talking about a school board, you're talking about whatever. Leadership matters. The whole nation has been pulled into a civil war. People are going to die. Because David's a mess. So David's got real opposition to what God wants to do in and through him. And that opposition is his son, his name Absalom. And what we've seen is David's dealing with that opposition with a, a balance of devout submission to God's will and wise actions to counter his opposition. But I would argue we saw some of that with Jesus, didn't we? There was a time that Jesus was teaching, and, and people got so mad at him, they, they wanted to throw him over a hill. And Jesus said, ah, yeah, not my time. And he, and he just walked through them. No, you're not tossing me. There'll come a time, but not, 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 not today. Another time, people had defiled the temple, made it a place of business, and Jesus said, yeah, we're done. He took a whip and, and get out, get out, get out, get out. He cleaned these things out. So, so Jesus, at times, acted to counter opposition. But there were other times he was submitted to the Father's will. John 19 records this. When they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus said, who, who are you guys looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And just the word I am knocked everybody over. I mean, Jesus could have walked. Stand back up. I am. He could have knocked him back down. He could have walked on that thing. But he didn't because he was submitted to the Father's will. As we face opposition, we need to seek the Lord, knowing that these two things are, are in tension, but they are very much in play. We need to be submitted to God's will, and we need to be asking Him, what are wise actions to counter God's opposition, the opposition to what God has for us in and through us? Now, before I ask you specifically to think about who are the people, what are the circumstances, who is it that's your opposition, I want us to think about our opposition. Because sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, we get it wrong. For this situation, I'm talking about in Jesus' life, he was invited to dinner by Simon the Pharisee. And that was kind of suspicious because Jesus was already having conflict. You, the Pharisees, you see, were good at being good. And they set a bunch of rules and regulations. And, and man, they kept sinners at a distance. Sinners at a distance because you get back there and you stay because the way you live, you don't measure up. And so Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and guess who shows up? 
a woman that's defined as a sinner. And she comes and she's crying and she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and Simon goes, this is wrong. And this is what he thinks. Now when the Pharisee Simon, who had invited him, being Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. Because what? Because wait, 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 we don't let sinners touch us, right? We don't get in any way. We don't get close to sin because we stay. But Jesus is letting this sinner touch him. She's crying and she's anointing his feet. And, and, and he, apparently he doesn't know that she is a sinner. What is Jesus? I mean, Jesus is all screwed up. Now, here's the deal. So if you're thinking, man, yeah, man, Andy, this summer, sermon's really lame. I, I, lame. I, I won't know that because I can't read your thoughts. So you're okay. All right, you can take that. But this guy's thinking, he's thinking, I'm thinking I'm good. But here's the problem with Jesus. He can read your thoughts. So he knows what this guy's saying. So he knows exactly what he's saying. So this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And he replied, say it, teacher. So Jesus is going to tell him a little parable. This is a short parable. Here we go. A uh, moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's a big debt. And that's probably the lady who was a sinner, you know. And the other one, 50, that's not so big. That probably corresponds to Simon the Pharisee. Okay? So we've got our terms there. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon says, bummer. I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, dude, you're right. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. Simon, the winner in this is the sinner because she is broken. You are proud and arrogant and you're the loser in this. Then he goes on and he talks about, you know, she's anointed my feet and she kissed me and she, she gave me her. And, and those are common greetings. You gave people water for their feet and you greeted them with a kiss and you gave them something to anoint their head. Simon, you've done none of that. Dude, you're supposed to be this religious guy and, and the common courtesy, she's kicking your butt. She's done all this stuff. Then he turns to the woman and he says, you, your sins are forgiven. He never says that to Simon, but he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. So I just want us to think, who's our opposition? Too often in the church we think it's the, the sinner. It wasn't Jesus' opposition. It was the self-righteous Pharisee that was Jesus' opposition. So having given you that little definition, can I ask, who's your opposition? Who are those people? What are those circumstances? That you, these people are opposing what God wants to do in and through you. Being Christ in our community, loving people. They're, they're opposing what God wants to do through you. Get those people on. Say, would, Lord, would you, I pray, would you give me that balance of submission to you and wise actions, so I can oppose them in a way that glorifies you. See, when we face opposition, there's a balance. We're submitted to God. And we're using wise actions to counter opposition. That we might live that out. That the name and reputation of Jesus might be moved forward. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven. We're challenged by your word.
you have called us. You've told us we're going to face opposition. But we don't deal with it like the world does. We deal with it as, as you instruct us. And you've told us to be people submitted to you. But not passive. Countering wisely. Lord, in a way that would move your name and your reputation forward. Lord, as we think of those people, give us that wisdom. Give us that balance. What are those wise actions? Lord, we're beseeching you that we might respond in a way that honors you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.